NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn on. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know there ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there. That even wants to be a little bit mellow. Now is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for subscribing, for those that do, and thank you for listening each and every week, bringing you newsmaking interviews with the biggest names in rock and metal. And this week is certainly no exception. But before we get to our interview, as usual, got to remind you guys that uh, every interview you hear on this podcast comes from my radio show, which is called Trunk Nation and heard live Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Channel 103 Faction Talk or on demand anytime on the SiriusXM app. Be sure to come on board and join me each and every day for the radio show if you're in the U.S. or Canada, and you can engage with us. You can call in. You can hear rock news every day. And, of course, the full spectrum of guests here on the podcast, we just bring you a little taste once a week. And if you want to sample SiriusXM and you don't already have it, all you got to do to get a free three-month trial is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. No credit card required. You can either stream it on an app or you can listen on your radios and sample it three months totally free. Again, no credit card, no obligation. So no excuse to not join us and check out the Daily Show Trunk Nation. Again, Monday through Friday, live 3 to 5 Eastern, Faction Talk 103. Can't listen live during those hours? No worries. The show is available on demand immediately after the live airing to listen anytime you want. Uh, just came back from Rock Island Fest, which was last week in Key West, Florida. Great time. As you're hearing this, I'm making my way through uh, Southern California and Las Vegas for, for some other stuff. Had a chance to 
host a charity event for Leslie West, also the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame Awards. A lot of stuff going on. Keep an eye on my social media, at Eddie Trunk, for info and updates. You will find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, and, of course, my Facebook page. Also, a couple new appearances to tell you about just added to the schedule. You'll find all of them on the homepage of eddietrunk.com. But Tom Kiefer in L.A. Guns, Wichita, Kansas at the Cotillion on March 29th. Oklahoma City at the Diamond Ballroom on March 30th. If you're in those areas of the country, come and uh, hang with me as I host Tom Kiefer and special guest L.A. Guns at those two venues in those two cities. Okay, this week on the podcast, happy to bring to you a recent interview from a couple weeks ago with Sully Erna, lead singer and founder of the band Godsmack. There's a great documentary on Sully that you can get now online. Apple TV has it, as, as, as well as a few other outlets. And it's a, just his life story. It's a great doc based on his book. So we spent a lot of time talking about that and some of his early bands. Also, what's going on now with Godsmack. Originally, Sully had said that he didn't plan to do any more music with Godsmack, not make any more new records. Although, as you're about to hear in the interview, he might be, might be changing his mind on that a little bit. Also, the timing to bring this to you as a podcast is great because Godsmack have just kicked off a tour where they're playing acoustic, kind of. Again, Sully talks about that in, in the interview you're about to hear as well. So great timing to bring you this week on the podcast. Sully Erna of Godsmack. Enjoy. How are you, brother? Hey, man. What's going on? Just getting into publishing conversations and clearance conversations. You would know a lot about that as a songwriter. It's uh, it can get yeah, complicated at times, he right? Sounded very passionate about it. He sounded emotional. <laughs> well, well, because this guy just called in and was trying to to say that that uh, Michael Anthony and Sammy Hagar should play songs from the Gary Sharon Van Halen album, and they're not doing it because they're being blocked from doing so. And I'm like, no, they're not doing it because it wasn't a big record. <laughs> it's yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> what are you going to do? Play the hits or, and everyone knows, or the one, and we, I'm, I'm sure I speak for you as well. We love Gary, but let's just be honest. It's not, wasn't a big record. No, it wasn't a big record. Yeah. Then they're not going to be nixing running with the devil and, you know, right. all the, uh, fair warning and mean streak for some of those songs. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Right. So how are you, man? How are your holidays and everything? Did you get some downtime? Yeah, everything's good, man. You know, I'm I'm always kind of not quite as down as I want to be because there's right. just always a project going on as something to do. And But, yeah, for the most part, yeah, I had a really good holiday. I've been spending a lot of time with my kid. And, uh, you know, now we're slowly ramping things back up to get on the road in February. So just, you know, projects here and there. Um, but But things are good. The ramp up is quick coming off the holiday. I mean, I came out of this last week and it was a pretty slow week. And then here I am in week two and I've got guests every day. So it's been really cool that things are really starting to you know heat up early in this new year. Speaking, I want to talk about your documentary, which is the main reason I reached out to you because I loved it. But before we get to that, you mentioned that you're getting ready to go out with Godsmack, but you're doing things a little different. You're going out and doing basically an acoustic show, right? Well, it's not really just strictly an acoustic show, but we are doing 
like we called it the vibes tour because all the music kind of has a real vibey aspect to it. Like we're playing a lot of the deeper cuts that we don't always get to play on the big shows because the big shows demand that kind of energy. So we're always focused on the legends rise and the thousand horsepowers and the keepaways and the I standalones. And we never get to dive into like some of the other stuff that we've created that we really enjoy playing too. And so we're pulling out like a lot of the stuff like that's more along the lines of the voodoos. So even though we play voodoo live on the big shows, cause it's just, it was, you know, it was a big song for us where we're, we're right. kind of going into the serenities, some of the new stuff um, off the, off our new record, like growing old um, and uh, lighting up the sky and, um, you know, we're, we're doing under your scars. We're doing, you know, we're doing some cool covers. We might be pulling out some like old vintage Zeppelin covers and Pink Floyd. And we're just going to kind of create a real ambient vibey kind of personal intimate evening with. So, you know, a little bit of storytelling, some cool jams, take people kind of on that journey and, um, and make it a little bit educational as well for some of the newer fans that have come on board that, you know, haven't been with us since the early days. So that that's kind of what this this next run or two is going to be about. One's in February, one's in April. And then, you know, by summertime, we'll start firing up the big rig again. Are you going to, on this Vibes tour, are you going to incorporate some of your solo music into it too? Well, we're talking about that. I, you know, I think we will at least do a song. I'm not sure how heavy into that we're going to go. Cause I also want to be able to take that back out on the road when Godsmack takes a break. So right. I don't want to dive too deep down that rabbit hole, but I'm sure we'll bust out one or two, you know, definitely at least one of them, you know, cause I think some of that stuff fits with this kind of vibe. So right. that's sure, why I asked, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Something will happen, but we're, we're still figuring things out. We haven't even got into rehearsals yet, which starts in a couple of weeks. So um, I'll know more once we start noodling around with songs and seeing what sounds good and and what doesn't. I know you've gone out. Like, I know you went out with, I think it was Aaron Lewis, where you went out and you did uh, kind of like an acoustic duo thing. I think it was, that was, I had you guys both on, I think. I think that was during COVID, wasn't it? Where you went out and did like yeah. the, the whole distancing thing and drive-ins or whatever <laughs> it was at the time. <laughs> yeah. Me and him wanted a tour. Everybody else was, you know, having panic attacks about COVID. But we were like, nope, we're not wearing masks and we're not going to, you know, kneel to this kind of thing. So we're going to go out and play music. And, you know, of course, there was rules and regulations to the venues and the promoters, but that was their choice. And for the most part, it was fun. We had a good time. At least we were out there. I think we're the only act out there actually playing music at that time. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. I think I had you guys both on together to talk about that, and um, that was uh, th that was, I mean, hard to believe, but that's four almost four years ago already that all that sort of madness was going on. But have you ever gone out with the full band with you know with Godsmack and presenting the music like this, like you're going to do on the Vibes tour? Have you ever presented it like this before with the full band? Well, we did, but we did a more stripped-down version, and it kind of really was acoustic. Uh, it was right around the time we got off the road with Metallica, and we did uh, an acoustic tour because we had released that album, The Other Side. And right. so we went out and um, played a bunch of that stuff, and then whatever Godsmack songs we could fit acoustically that was really like more stripped down. Like I think people are expecting this to be, but this is going to be a mixture of like acoustic, electric, piano, 
you know, some stuff will be full on electric, some stuff will be acoustic, you know, some stuff will be just stripped down. So it's going to be kind of a, a montage of everything, I think. Well, this tour, which as Sully just said, is called the uh, Vibes Tour. It starts off in Tulsa at the uh, Hard Rock, a place I've been many, many times on February 15th. And you can see all the dates at godsmack.com and there's a good amount of them. So get out and check this out. Your your special guest is, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Bastion de Cruz. Who is that? I don't know that artist. Yeah, Bastian de Cruz. Um, so he's actually the son of one of our crew guys, um, our stage manager, Peter de Cruz. It's his son. And, you know, at first he just kind of asked me if we would do it as a favor, but I'm like, yeah, what, you know, we're not going to do that. We don't know anything about your son or what he does. Then he actually played me some stuff and I started looking him up and I'm like, wow, he's actually really good. <laughs> and, um, so he's uh, so we're giving this kid an opportunity to come out and do some music in front of, you know, uh, an audience here in America because they're from Denmark. But I will oh. say the dude, he's legit. He's legit. He's just, uh, you know, he sits up there, he plays an acoustic and sings and he's really, really good. So I'm excited to give him an opportunity. Well, you know, that kind of that kind of segues nicely into talking about your documentary, which I had a chance to watch the other day because it's it's um it's it's a phenomenal documentary. I know it's based on your book and it you know really what you know my takeaway from watching the doc was the 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 perseverance. I mean there's so many different sides to it. There's obviously the the area you grew up in, the struggles and everything as a kid, but also your perseverance and wanting to be a rock musician and then just some of the stuff that's in there, some of the footage just being knuckleheads at parties and drinking and all that. It's the music you listen to so relatable because we're around the same age. We, you know, both mm -hmm. grew up in the Northeast. It's like, it's so much there, but, but getting, getting that opportunity is something that you always strive for when you're an up and coming musician. So, you know, you had some opportunities. They didn't always work out in bands before Godsmack that's documented in the documentary, but it's got to feel good for you. I would think to be in a position you're in fronting a major band like Godsmack to be able to take an act like this, which not everybody knows and say, Hey, that's really good. I'm going to give them a shot. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're kind of known for that anyways. Like I've always liked to give back whenever I can. And so whenever we've had an opportunity to bring a best friend on the road, teach him how to be a great tech, or, you know, we sent one of my best friends to who was actually one of the lead guys in the documentary, Jimmy Mustafa. Um, we sent him away to lighting school because he had just great rhythm. And he's pretty much helped me out my whole life with other bands and the clubs and all the way through those years. So when the opportunity came about, I knew he had great rhythm, great timing, but he just didn't know anything about the technical side of the boards and how to run the technology. So we sent him to lighting school and he got trained. And then, you know, he's been one of our main lighting directors all these years. So whether it's, you know, new artists like shine down and Hailstorm when they were just starting up and we would, you know, take those kind of bands on the road, puddle of mud, whatever, um, through, you know, through just giving crew people an opportunity and, seeing some of them move on to do, you know, some A-level stuff. It's like, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's just, it's the only thing I can do. It's the only thing I can offer for what we've done is if I have a, a chance to give back from, you know, out of my, some of my success, then for me, it's, um, it's good karma. It makes me feel good. And, and 
it it makes me um I don't know. It's nice to see someone like someone that has talent and be able to give them an opportunity and you know showcase them somehow. Like that's that's just a feel good good karma kind of thing, you know. Even with Shannon, a drummer, you know, he was playing in punk bands his whole life, whether it was Wrathchild America or Ugly Kid Joe or um, Snot, and uh, you know whatever he did, he, he always was you know was uh, Amen and all those bands. He was he was always kind of just grinding. He was just kind of a, you know, he was just a punk rock, lived out of a van kind of touring musician. And so even to give him that opportunity when we needed to bring someone new into the into the band, it's just been a blessing to watch those kind of people have their opportunity. You know, it's not because they're my friend and I can give them that, that opportunity. It's because... They're, they're that great at what they do and they deserve that opportunity to be seen and heard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just celebrated uh, doing 40 years of radio and that to me, that's the most rewarding thing for me in my career, whether it's going back to when I started in 83 or even a new band. Now I've got, you know, to be able to give them an opportunity to be heard on the radio. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I started doing is to be able to, the reason I started doing this was to take music I loved and be able to share it with other people, whether it's an old band that never got their due or a new young band. So it's, it's definitely good when you're in a position and you can do that. And I think that that's really cool that you're still, uh, you're still doing it even at the level you're at now, when you mention Shannon and you talk about, uh, again, going back into the doc, uh, the doc is called, I stand alone, the Sully Ernest story. There, there's a great, uh, bit in there about that because I mean, Look, I've known you for a long time and I've been a fan for a long time, but I didn't even know about the very, very early years and all those bands you were in as a drummer before Godsmack. But you you actually saw Shannon Larkin with Wrathchild America as they had to become known after a while. And you say that as a drummer, you actually stole a lot from him, right? Oh, yeah. When I seen Shannon, I knew I had to step up my game because, you know, at that point in my life, I was a really good drummer. Like I I spent my whole life studying drums. I, I quit school. I quit relationships. I quit family. I quit everything to play the drums and just study Neil Peart and John Bonham and Buddy Rich. And so my chops were pretty much on point and I, I could play almost any kind of music. Um, but what was missing was showmanship. And when I seen Shannon, not only did he have great chops, but he was an insane showman. And I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Like, now I got to do that on top of all this other stuff? So um, Shannon really brought that, you know, to the forefront for me was, was showmanship and not just kind of being a drummer that sits back there and doesn't, you know, just kind of holds down the beat and Charlie Watts the thing, you know? So – that I mean, and and for and, and it's no disrespect to Charlie Watts, by the way, but it's just that those kind of bands you can do that, right? The Rolling Stones or whatever. That's it's. But right. when you're in a, a big energetic metal band, punk band, and those kind of things, and you have your whole front line like putting on a show, it's kind of nice when you can contribute as a drummer and not just be the guy in the background that's holding the beat down, right? So that's you know that was something I learned from Shannon very quickly. So this documentary, which um, is based on your book, now your book came out back in 07, The Paths We Choose. Tell me about the evolution of the documentary and was this something that was always 
that you had envisioned for the book? Did it take a long time to get it done? Tell me how the idea to turn it into a film came about. Well, starting with the book, I will tell you this. I didn't even know how to write a book, let alone did I ever have that on my agenda to put out a book and have it published. And I never even knew how hard it was to get a book published until after my book was published. And everybody was like, wow, you got it published? Like everyone made such a big deal about it. I'm like, really? Is that not what you do when you write a book? And they're like, yeah, but not everybody gets a book published. So it was kind of one of those things that just fell into place. I was on the road touring a lot. We were, you know, doing seven shows in a row with one day off, nine shows in a row, one day off, 11 shows in a row, one day off. This went on for years. And so when I was out there, of course, naturally, I'd miss my family and friends and I would call home and we would get into these discussions about all the old days and the crazy shit we did. And I just started jotting down little footnotes to go like, oh, yeah, that story. I forgot about that. Right. Let me just write down the title of that. So one day I can tell my grandkids, like, look what your stupid grandfather did. Right. Um, and then the more I collected these notes, the more I started organizing them in the order of dates. And then eventually I was making a manuscript, right? Because whenever I was on the road and I had these long flights to Japan or touring on a bus, all these hours, I would just sit there, look at one of my titles, you know, stole bread when I was 14, whatever. And then I'd write out that story the best I could in my own voice. But I was just really doing it to collect it for myself. Then my manager read it and he's like, wow, this is really kind of good like you should bring this to a publisher and that's kind of how that all happened so as the book did well and and it kind of turned from me just wanting to tell funny crazy stories about my childhood into realizing that it was becoming an inspirational book to schools and teachers to show these kids to like stand up be strong have perseverance have determination accept disappointment move on move past it work harder you know, that was really the, the message that, that came behind the book. Um, uh, at one point, a friend of mine, Troy Smith, who's a writer-director, you know, he goes, I would love to just do this as a documentary. Like, I feel like you're at that point in your career where it would be nice for all these fans to know what happened before you got the record deal. Because that's kind of what the book is about. It starts when I was born, goes through my life, and it kind of ends when I get the deal. But it's all about the ups and downs and the journey along the way. So we started to put it together, but you quickly realize, and you'll relate to this because we're the same age, that we didn't have video cameras back then. So you can't just have a documentary and have it be a talking head the whole time. You know, you kind of right. need images and visuals to go along with the storytelling. But we didn't have phones and cameras and all that back then. Not that we could afford anyways. And um so we didn't have the imagery to support it. And that's why it took so long to finish this. They, you know, we've been working on it for, I don't know, almost six years now, but cause we had to reenact a lot of stuff that, you know, as we're picking and choosing what stories are important to tell that told the story of how I became a musician, how I became a songwriter, how even Godsmack was born and developed. All those stories were the most important ones that we could, you know, think of, but we never, we didn't always have, you know, film to support it and to show kind of the situations as we're talking through it. So that that's really what, what took a while was to, you know, to be able to get this done 
just it took a lot of thinking and we wanted the reenactments to be realistic you know sometimes those can come out really cheesy and corny and yes yeah so i took kind of control of that side of it and and hired and casted and directed the reenactment side of it because no one's going to remember the situations better than me so i even got to film in my original house that i grew up in which was amazing because anytime we were telling a crazy story about a fight or whatever i literally got to use the same backdrop as it actually happened in when I was a kid. So that was really cool, you know, to recreate all that stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how that all, all got put together. Yeah. I mean, that's a really key part about this because I agree with you. I generally hate reenactments because they usually Mm -hmm. just feel so cheesy and not right, but watching, Mm -hmm. watching this. And I think younger people today take for granted because everything's on video, you know, anything that happens anywhere in the world, you just expect to pull up the video for it because we're all walking around with 4k cameras in our pocket, but it wasn't like that when we were kids. And I think it's amazing the reenactments that, that you guys did here, because I got to tell you, man, I mean, there's a couple times I like rewound a little bit. Cause I'm like, was that actually Sully or was that like, cause it so captures the vibe of that time. Like it really, it, there was no cheesiness at all. That to me was a key element of this being so good was that I, I actually had to look two or three times to say, was that, did he actually have that footage or is that actually a reenactment because you put so much into that? Well, some of it was me. Some of it was early days, but more or less like the early days of drumming, the early days of Godsmack, things like that. Like when you see the old black and white footage of that little kid playing the drums and all that, that really is me. My uncle had, he was kind of like the rich uncle in the family, but they lived in Connecticut and um, they would, uh, my uncle's wife was my dad's sister. So when they would come to visit us, you know, he always had one of those old big fat VHS camcorder things and, uh, you know, would film his daughter's recitals and things like that when they took ballet. So he'd bring it with him and he captured some of that footage of me hanging out with my mom and driving her nuts around the table and playing the drums in my bedroom and all that. So that stuff, you know, is actually me and um, some of the teenage years um, of playing drums is, you know, is real footage, but it was a lot of the, like, you know, the drug scenes and the fight scenes and the arrest scenes and all that, those kind of things we had to, we had to kind of recreate. There's a really, really heavy moment in the documentary that, you know, if the, if the, you can explain, you can tell the story better than I, of course, but really in a nutshell, if the gun was loaded, it would be a whole different story and a whole different arc to your life right now. And we might not even be talking right now. Uh, but, but, you know, tell that story because that blew my mind, man, that you, you, you pulled the trigger on somebody, but the gun wasn't loaded. Thank God. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, you know, when you're young, and you grow up in this kind of environment like we did, which, you know, again, Lawrence, Massachusetts, at one point, even Time magazine had quoted one of the most violent cities in America. So it's it's every bit up there with the Comptons and the Bronxes and all these kind of gnarly inner cities that, you know, people struggle with and, and are very challenging. And, you know, we were raised with that kind of violence and crime and gangs and drugs and Um, so, you know, when you're in that, these kind of situations don't feel as deadly and they don't feel as 
um, life-threatening, right? You, you don't, you don't think about spending the rest of your life in prison or, or, um, or, die, you know, getting killed or something like that. You're just in these situations where you're trained almost to defend yourself at all times. And these kind of neighborhoods, you couldn't really walk around without carrying some kind of a weapon or, um, you know, being prepared at least to kind of get yourself out of a situation because there was a lot of racism going on. The, you know, there was a lot of Puerto Ricans. There was a lot of mixed Hispanics from Dominican Republic, but yet there was still a lot of white kids and Italians and Irish that were originally there. And then, you know, there was this, this inner conflict all the time. So these things just kind of, you never know when you were going to the store to grab your mom some milk and you walk around the corner and there's a group of, you know, Hispanic kids waiting for you and you're just like, oh no, here we go. So when these kind of fights happen, you know, going to a house party or whatever it is and a group of kids get into it, your objective is just to win. That's it, you know, survive. Because you don't know who has a knife, who has a gun and that kind of thing. So when when we got into it, and of course there's a lot of alcohol involved, um, and I, I just got into a huge fight with this kid upstairs at the party when we were leaving and his friends jumped on me and I was getting booted in the head and kicked in the ribs. And, you know, me, I'm trying to like just fight this one kid. And I realized all his friends were around me and my friends had left, went downstairs to get the car. So I'm scrambling to get out of this mess that I found myself in. So when I get down there, I'm all banged up and uh, Freddie and Jimmy see me. So they jump out of the car asking me what's going on. And um, earlier in the night, Freddie had showed me that he had a sawed-off shotgun in the trunk that he was transporting for his sister's boyfriend or something like that. And uh, when these kids came out after I got out of the fight and came downstairs and I seen all those kids that I was just fighting dump out of the house onto the lawn, then we both, it was kind of like the warriors, you know, (laughs) two kings walking up to each other just like, getting ready to go at it again. And of course my friends are yelling at his guys trying to figure out what happened. And in the meantime, I just seen this kid pull out this huge fishing knife, like one of those Rambo knives. And um, he was just, I don't know, he was wasted. His eyes, his pupils were all swollen and black and he was just on a mission to come at me. So while everyone's arguing, being distracted, this dude's coming at me with a big knife and he went, you know, raised it up over his head and uh, I, I had asked Freddie uh, for the keys to his his trunk. So I had ran over to the trunk and I popped the trunk and I grabbed the shotgun. And I, you know, at first, I think I was just trying to scare him. I wanted to raise a gun up because he had this big knife and he wanted to stab me. And I think my first intentions was just to just thinking that if I pull out a shotgun, he's going to run, you know, and, uh, and that diffuses the whole thing. But he didn't. He just kept coming straight for me like fucking Frankenstein. And I'm like, shit. So, you know, I, I just reacted and I pulled the trigger and it was just click. And I said, oh, shit, I didn't put bullets on the gun. But, uh, you know, laughing about it now is easy. But at the time, it was a pretty scary situation because this dude came down on me and I just grabbed his wrist and we hit the ground fighting again. And I just remember holding on to his wrist and thinking, don't, you know, don't let go of this kid's wrist because if, he, if I do, I don't know where this knife is going to be. And if it ends up inside of me, it was way too big of a knife and for sure he would have killed me. So yeah. it ended up being this mess. And then we scrambled out of there and, 
you know, him got away and his friends dealt with him getting the knife out of his hands and all that shit. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm just grateful that it really did turn out that way. Cause for sure, again, someone was watching over me. I mean, if there was a bullet in that gun, I, there are a lot of things that have been different in my life and including, you know, I wouldn't have had a daughter, this band wouldn't have existed and I would have spent the rest of my life in prison. But, and then I got to tell you another thing that we didn't even cover in the documentary was the same kid just to validate the story on how important this was for me to protect myself at that time. I found out that he ended up going to prison for stabbing someone to death in a road rage incident. Oh, wow. So he, yeah. And then we were trying to get him to see if we were going to interview him for the documentary and he died. I don't know how he died. I never got that information, but somehow he either got killed or passed away or whatever. But that just goes to show me that he actually was capable of stabbing yeah. someone to death. And it probably would have been me that night. So, yeah, you know, I, I made the yeah. choice I had to make, but man, it, it wouldn't have mattered had there been a bullet in that gun because I'm the one that would have did time. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. No, it's maybe, a heavy maybe it would have got off on self-defense and manslaughter or something, but, and did, you know, less years. I don't know how that would have panned out because I mean, the kid came at me with a knife. So I don't right. know, but I'm just glad I didn't have to, you know, find out what would have happened. I yeah, got away with it's a, a little stab mark in my ribs. It's a heavy moment in the documentary and it's a very powerful reenactment in that as well. And, you know, your, your family's featured in it, your daughter, your, your parents. I mean, it, it, it's really, really the, the whole early story, which, Again, I just didn't know, so I found that part really um, interesting. And, you know, I'm curious because in the documentary, you're talking to kids in a school auditorium. Um, what is Lawrence like now? And was that in Lawrence, those kids, or was that somewhere else? And as that has the city, as the town in Mass where you grew up and where all this was going on, has it gotten better or gotten worse? It's It's pretty bad. I would say worse. I mean, Honestly, I don't live in it anymore, but all that stuff we filmed was in Lawrence. Um, the school was right in the, in the suburbs of Lawrence, um, but it's, it's pretty gnarly still. I mean, it's a, pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty rough town. There's a lot of, still a lot of gangs and cartel and violence and drugs. As a matter of fact, some of the police there are friends of mine because my uncle was a police officer in Lawrence for over 40 years. He's passed away since, but they still know me, you know, and we obviously had to get permission to film certain things in certain areas. And they were telling me some crazy stories when we were filming some of the reenactment stuff where like, there's, you know, there's a lot of cameras on almost every telephone pole now because there's so many gangs and cartel and it's become like the hub of all the heroin in the Northeast. So it's, it's a big, you know, there's a big problem there for sure. And I mean, I know the officials are trying to clean it up and they're trying to upgrade condos and housing and stuff. So it kind of pushes the trash out further, but um, raising rents and things like that, making stuff nicer, but this is just so much of it. It's a big city, you know, and it's hard to clean up a big city because it just kind of moves from one end to the other. So, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, it's not paradise living in Lawrence, but it certainly was a great place to teach you about life and the lessons that life was going to throw at you, you know, to, to make you strong and, and, and persevere and, you know, 
have the kind of strength and determination you need to get to get out there and face life and all the situations that are thrown at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Couple other things. I won't keep you too long, man. I appreciate the time. Um, the I knew you. Uh, the bands, the bands you were in prior to Godsmack, they were all you as a drummer, not as the front man, not as the singer. But you know, for people that don't know, I remember that band Strip Mind. That's featured in the documentary. You talk about that, and then I, I forgot about Malaya Rage that you were in that band. But then there was oh, a yeah. band, your first first band was, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was basically a cover band. What was the name? Great name. What was the name of that band again? I forget. The first band. Um, the band you so were doing covers. Was, if, Ma- take me through the bands. Um, Malaya Craze. Mal- Malaya Craze. Malaya Rage. Right, right, was, right. Um, the Fighting Cocks. Right. <laughs> that's a fun one right to try to book a band and put that on the box <laughs> somewhere right um i'm trying to think of what else was on there that malaya the, um, craze that's that's the one i was thinking that was the glammy one one right the, the fighting cocks no malaya craze malaya craze yeah that was when i first moved to north carolina and started a band right yeah and, and you were doing was that covers? You were doing all covers pretty much? Mostly, yeah. We had a couple of, couple of originals, but we were mostly covers. And I mean, this is the 80s now we're talking, right? Because I moved to North Carolina in December of 86. So this was 87, 1987. And that's what was, you know, you know, that's what was going on. Motley Crue, yeah. Def Leppard. Sure. You know, it was all that stuff. So yeah, we were, you know, teasing our hair and wearing eyeliner and spandex and we looked fucking ridiculous. 
And you know, there's a th- in the documentary. There's a moment where you sh- they show this photo, which to me is such an iconic photo. It was so impactful to me as well. There's a photo <laughs> in the Aerosmith live bootleg record of Joe Perry mm-hmm. holding up a BC Rich. He's wearing a, a really like a flannel shirt. He looks mm-hmm. Joe Perry always looks the coolest guy, but it's just yep. so friggin' cool. And that. Sully, I had that poster on the wall of my closet in my bedroom in my parents' house. Mm. I would just stare at it. It was the coolest yep. damn thing. The Joe's face, the, the the guitar, it was so freaking cool. It's still so cool. And I still maintain, I think Bootleg is one of the most underrated 70s live records. I mean, that is so raw, right down to the M80s going off before Lord of the Thighs. It's so mm-hmm. real. And that photo is so freaking cool. And, you know, I, I didn't become a musician, but it did inspire me in a way to get into music. And I know for you, you mentioned that photo was so pivotal because it actually kind of drove you to want to be a musician. It was. It was the photo. It was the one photo I can remember that had such an impact on me. And yet I was a drummer. And here I right. am being inspired by the look and the presence of a guitar player. You know, he's standing there holding up a red BC Rich. His hair is covering his face, running down his nose and over his eyes. He had that cool blonde streak on the side of his head. And he's standing in front of a stadium of people with a flannel shirt on. I'm like going, oh, my God. Like, if that's not the coolest looking dude I've ever seen in my life. You look like the sheepdog on fucking Bugs Bunny, right? Like, that (laughs) (laughs) you couldn't see his eyes or whatever. And from that point forward, I grew my hair out. I wanted it over my eyes. You never see my eyes again after that. Like, I didn't have the same kind of hair. My hair was super curly. But that was it. That started everything. And so from there, that picture made me want, you know, I'd always been a musician, but that picture made me want to be a rock star. Yeah, I mean, that picture for me, it did the same thing in a different way because back then I had hair. I have very little left now, but back then I had great hair Mm -hmm. and I grew it. I I have photos like I totally went for the Joe Perry hair and I had it at one point. And uh, even at, you know, I used to always wear flannels and stuff. And it's like, even though I didn't end up becoming a musician, it it just gave me like, I got to be in this business. I got to be with the, you know, I got to help these guys. I got to work with these guys. I got to be a part of this. That photo just meant so much. But I remember like for me, like kiss was my thing. And then the first thing I let into my world that wasn't kiss was that poster and that photo and that record and was Aerosmith. So it just is so, it's just funny how something like just a photo on a poster in a live record from the seventies could inspire people to do different things because it just meant so much. Yeah, but their music was also great, too. Remember back yes. then, too, we called it acid rock, right? That was kind of what it was. If you listen to their songs back then versus who they became later after the sobriety and all that, I was tripping on this the other day, and I was thinking, so Aerosmith, and especially Steven Tyler, one of the greatest lyricists, one of the greatest melody makers, is known for some huge choruses. Right. I mean, the guys wrote some big, big songs, including, you know, Dream On or whatever. But with the exception of Dream On, if you listen through a lot of that older stuff, songwriting was different back then. It was like jam band. It wasn't like get to the chorus. Right. And, And hit this big melody and be anthemic and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. I think. 
it feels to me anyways, songs like, you know, Nobody's Fault and Combination and Round and Round and that kind of stuff. It's like, it doesn't have those big hooks, but yet it's amazing music. And it's just like, it's weed smoking music, right? It's just like these cool jams that, that just happen and the sounds and the feedback and everything's just a little bit like out of control and unsafe. And that's the stuff that like really turned me on. Plus they're a Boston band, grew up in the Boston area. So of course, you know, these guys were iconic to me, but think of all the other bands that also became humongous bands in the world that were probably influenced by them the same way. Slash, you tell me Slash never listened to Joe Perry or loved him. He'll be the first I mean, to tell you. He, he actually hair. He would look just like Joe Barry with his bang, you know, hair in front of his eyes the whole time, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, Les Paul around his knees. Bullshit if he didn't love Joe Perry. Oh, and he'll he'll be the first to tell you that. As a matter of fact, on one of his recent solo records, he put in the inside sleeve a drawing he did as a kid from the inside sleeve of the Rocks record. He'll tell you that he you he he owns it. I mean, there's no question about it. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's really incredible. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the influence and everything is just endless, but the, the, the other, the last thing I wanted to hit you with about this doc, which was also interesting to me is to a lot of people, you know, and I worked in radio when your first record came out with Godsmack, and to a lot of people, you seemingly came out of nowhere on the national level, at least. And, uh, what the documentary shows is that you, you, after giving it a run with two, three bands as a drummer, you basically were done. Like you left the whole music thing, you gave up on it. And then all of a sudden you start sniffing around a little bit and decide, you know what? I'm not only going to give it another shot, but now I'm going to come out from behind the drums and I'm going to sing, which everyone's like, your friends were like, you can sing. <laughs> And then that's when it actually happens. So your passion is playing drums. You bang your head against the wall. You go to North Carolina, you try all this different stuff, and then you check out and then you come back, you give it one last shot. And that's when it happens. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah. And by the way, let's just remind everybody that just like it's hard to get 30 years of your life into you know, a a 280 page book memoir, it's even harder to stick 30 years of your life into a 90 minute documentary. So there is dozens of bands that I didn't even mention that I played through from the time I was young until I started Godsmack. And there was tons of tons of relationships and so many more fights and so many more arrests and so many more drugs and like, there was just so much more that that documentary is just a little blip of the first 30 years of my life, but they were the ones that felt the most appropriate, you know, to kind of thread what, how the music came in and out of my life and saved me most of the time and gave me that thing, you know, to, to look forward to or whatever. So it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that uh, there, there's so much more that, goes along with that documentary but we felt that this was you know the best way to accurately i don't know portray the 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 perseverance that happened right we actually almost called the movie perseverance at one point because really that's we didn't know what the story was going to be for a while we went through this a few different times and but then it was complete and you know we changed it a few different 
ways. Sometimes it was a story about my relationship with my dad. Other times it was a story about my relationship with my music. Like we really didn't know which way that this was going to go. But when I finally sat back and watched, I'm like, you know what? This is just, this is a story of perseverance. It's about a story of one kid's journey through life and the ups and downs that he faced as he, you know, had this one thing that he wanted his whole life and was working the best he could for it um, and sacrificed everything for it, you know? And so that's, I think that's the kind of the whole message to this, this documentary is hopefully it inspires people to just keep going, to understand that we all struggle. We all have our challenges. And today, my God, with today's generation and these kids, it's just unbelievable. Like, how they just don't have the drive or the desire, you know, because they just want it, everything's handed to them through the click of a button on social media, but it's just, that's not reality. And when it doesn't happen for them, you know, bad things happen to them. So, you know, this is important. There's still a lot of people out there that work really hard to try to obtain a good life for themselves, no matter what that is. It could be a painter could be a carpenter, you could be an actor, you could be a musician, but nothing is handed to us easily. Even with today's, you know, new generations and social media and all that, they're, they're seeing those superstars just like we saw the superstars back then. You know, when we were growing up and we were trying to get a glimpse of Robert Plant or Jimmy Page in a limo or Steven Tyler, like it's very hard to make it in this business, you know, less than 1% of us do it. And so, and I would assume there's, there's a low percentage for the, I mean, maybe it's higher than it was for us, but I would still think in relevance to the masses and the people that are trying to be TikTok phenomenons or branding deal models and whatever it is that they do, you know, they're looking up to the Kardashians and all these kind of huge success stories, but not all of them make it, you know? And so, they need to kind of still learn how when life knocks them down, you got to stand up and go for it again. You got to keep moving forward. Like you can't just let, you know, this thing consume you and go into a depression and that kind of stuff. So yeah. Anyways, I'm ranting. No, no, no. I mean, and I don't want to keep you too long. I mean, there's just a couple other quick things and I'll let you go. I promise because the story is just amazing. Um, The, the, uh, the first Godsmack record, like, the thing I'm interested in too, I'm always interested in the art of songwriting because I think it's such an interesting art and it's something that, you know, is so, is so compelling to me. And you were a drummer your entire career before Godsmack and all the bands you were in. Historically, most drummers are not the main songwriters. You have exceptions, but usually drummers are not big contributors in songwriting. So then you start Godsmack and you're the primary a songwriter in the band. When, when did songwriting become a thing for you? Were you writing songs even in those previous bands as a drummer, or did that light just kind of come on when you decided to come out front from the drums? Uh, well, yeah, there's a piece of the story that's kind of missing in here, but again, it didn't feel relevant to go too deep down this rabbit hole. But when I was, when I had got to the point where I played and got a deal with Stripmind, and that was a big deal. I thought that was the moment. That's the kind of music I was playing at the time. I'm with, you know, Warner Reprise Records. We're touring, even in a van. I didn't care. Like, it was a graduation for me. Um, 
that that's where I thought I made it. And then I got fired from that band and everything just got taken away from me very quickly. So I quit music. Uh, and so I remember that was like, I think I was 25 years old and, um, yeah, 25 or 26 years old. I quit music for good. I was like, done, can't do this anymore. Um, and then I went and cut my hair off and I got a normal job and I met a girl and like I was living a normal life, but of course being a musician, you know, it comes back to bite you again and you just kind of get these urges and now you're in love with this girl and you really want her to see that you have a talent. And, you know, so there's a lot of that love that drives you to want to, you know, be the best you can be and make that person proud of you and whatever. So that's when um, I started thinking about starting a new band and I started with Robbie and a couple other musicians, um, this kid named Lee Richards and we were called the scam. We started out, we called ourselves the scam and we called ourselves that because we could never get gigs. So we would like wait outside of the club for the opening band to show up for that was opening for power man 5,000 or whoever was playing at the time. And we would tell the band to fuck off because we worked for the club and you're late. So beat it. And then when the owner would come out, be like, where's the opening band would be like, Oh, that's us. And we'd be like, we have our equipment with us. We'll just set up real quick. And, uh, and so we, we caught us up. That, that was the birth of Godsmack, the scam. So, but then what I, here's, here's to answer your question. I was writing these really lame songs cause I had never wrote music before. I mean, someone had showed me some chords on a guitar. I was just trying to find my vocals and I was a good screamer, but I couldn't get it in key. Like I, I was trying to figure shit out. Right. But I just knew I didn't want to take direction from anyone else being a drummer in a band. I was going to write the music, record the drums, do the vocals, and then figure out where to find a drummer. And that was the plan. Right. So, but then the music was just terrible. And I was writing about things that didn't, you know, getting blowjobs from girls or something. I, I don't even remember what I was writing about, but it was just horrible lyrics. And unfortunately, a friend of mine, Dave, took his life right around this time, and he hung himself in the basement with a chain. And I remember sitting on my girlfriend's bedroom floor one day when she was at work, and I was really upset about it, and I was kind of jotting down feelings and how he must have felt being that alone and, and how much pain he must have been in to actually have the balls to do it, right? Because a lot of people talk about it, but to, to, to actually do it, that's it's pretty ballsy, right? So I'm thinking, man, I felt a lot of pain in my life, but how deep was this pain? So I wrote this song and it ended up being an acoustic song called Another Day. And I broke down and I bawled my eyes out. And it, I immediately felt relief. You know, all that heaviness in my chest went away. And till this day, I never recorded that song because it's still kind of a heavy song. I'm sure I will one day, but I just, I don't know. I just never did. And, um, but what it taught me was how to write about real events in my life and real emotions, good or bad. And um, it was then that I realized how music heals us. And that's when I started to go, oh, now I see what we got to do here. So I started to like take all the shit in my life and dig it up from inside me. And I started writing what became the first Godsmack material you know, and then I, I unfortunately, again, went through a breakup with a girl that I was really in love with. Um, that story is in the documentary and right. that stuff all, you know, that's, that's how I learned how to be a songwriter, a lyricist, 
I just knew that I had a vent. I had to use it therapeutically. And um, it's the way I've always written ever since. And, and all those events that happened in my life back then that was so painful and hurtful and I carried all this weight was the birth of Godsmack. Now, as a songwriter, you recently said that you don't envision Godsmack making more records anymore and that you basically just want to be a touring entity. But as a songwriter, how do you frame that? Are you holding to that or do you envision maybe changing on that at one point and wanting to make new Godsmack music down the line? I, you know, it's funny. I just had this talk at my record label yesterday. We had a meeting about some other stuff and I told them that like, Listen, you know, because they're a little bummed out. They're like, oh, you know, is this the last? I would imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, and I said, listen, you can never say never. Right. But I do know this. Neil Peart said this to me once. All great things must come to an end. Eventually. It doesn't matter how great you are, who you are. Right. But all great things are going to come to an end at some point. And I just never forgot that. And I'm like, you know, at what point do you just start living your life for you? And not always be on a schedule, not always be in a recording studio, not always be signing autographs, taking pictures, touring, playing shows, doing podcasts, doing videos. Like, it's a lot, man. It it consumes your life. And it's what I've always wanted. And I'm so proud of it. And I'm so grateful for this career. I have nothing to complain about. But am I going to do this forever until I'm in my grave? I don't know. I, I know right now I'm still good and I like it. And I'm enjoying it. I'm getting, you know, tired. And um, there is more things I want to do with my life. It's not, you know, music's not everything I want to do with my life. So I, I don't know. I know right now we're, we're going to finish this album cycle. We'll take a break. I have a feeling I'll end up doing some, some, some solo stuff. I don't even know what that's going to sound like yet. But I may want to do a little bit more of a rock album on the solo side. Um, but... I don't know. You know, I have a feeling that in time, I'm just going to, I'm going to be writing and I'm going to do what I've always done. You know, I'll finish a song and it'll go in one folder because it sounds like solo music to me. And I'll finish another song and it'll be banging and heavy. And I'll be like, it's going in that folder because that's a Godsmack song. And then eventually I'm going to have a record. And of course I'm going to release it. (laughs) And then here we go again. So, right. It's funny because most, you know, most bands do, most bands do farewell tours, but they say, Oh, maybe we'll still make records, but I just don't want to tour anymore. You're actually going the yeah. opposite route. You're saying, well, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll tour, but I'm going to do a farewell record, but I might come back from my farewell tour, my farewell record. So you're, you're actually, it's refreshing because <laughs> at least you're going the other angle. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just what we feel at the moment. You know, we, 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 we tripped across this conversation the more we thought about it, the more we were like, look, it, we're starting to bum out a little bit live because there's a lot more songs that we want to play. And, and again, I'm not complaining. We've been very blessed to have a good career and a good run of top 10 singles. We're at, I think, 27 top 10 singles with 13 number ones. So that means, I don't know, if we get two or three off this record, we're going to be at 30, number one, uh, 30 top 10 singles. That means we could do 15 songs a night, play back-to-back nights in the same venue, and never play the same single twice, let alone the deep cuts. So we're going like, fuck, at what point do we honor the catalog 
and, and do what we want as fans when we go to see our favorite bands like Aerosmith or Metallica or whatever. Are we really going to see their new record? No. I'm, I'm just being honest. Like, right. No, yeah, I'm you're right. You put it out. I'm going to check it out. But am I going to love it as much as Train Kept a Rolling and Dream On and same old song and dance and walk this way? No, I, that's the shit I'm going to see. I want to see it. Like, play those songs. Don't spend 45 minutes playing your new record because that's not, that's not the nostalgia of why you've been around for 40, 50 years, you know? And so we're just trying to like set ourselves up to at least give our fans what I think they expect us to do. And with this many singles, we're like, man, how many more things are we going to pile on our plate here before we can't even get to all of them, which is now. And that's kind of part of the reasoning behind it. So we were like, yeah, you know, maybe it's the right time. Maybe we just go out on the catalog and go play live shows, which is what we love to do, what the people love to see us do. And, you know, again, if we write some new music, we write some new music. I don't know what's going to happen with that right now, but we do love playing shows and, you know, that's what we're going to do for now. All right, last thing, and we'll let you go. How can we've talked about this documentary? We spent uh, an hour straight just now shooting the shit, which again I appreciate. But the people listening that want to see this thing, where can they go to see it? Is it on all the streaming outlets? Is it a rental thing? Is it physically as a Blu-ray or something? Like, what are the options to to see the doc? Yeah, well, right now it's a pay-per-view, so it's on Apple TV, it's on Amazon Prime, I believe it's on. I think it's on Google play and Microsoft, like whatever the platforms are that people watch movies on. I don't believe it's on like a Netflix and a Hulu and that kind of thing yet, because I believe those kind of networks buy your product and then they, you're just a subscriber right. and then you can flip through their movies and choose whatever you want. That's why you don't pay per movie because you're paying a monthly subscription. So we're, we're, we're not on those yet, but I do think we're on most pay-per-view kind of, platforms so I, I would just say the easiest way to find it is either apple tv or amazon prime okay and it's called i stand alone the sully Ernest story i definitely definitely suggest checking it out we just scratched the surface on what's in there and it's uh it's really really cool and again you can uh check out godsmack on tour the vibes tour starting in tulsa february 15th and uh running for a good amount of dates throughout the u.s wrapping up in uh looks like maryland in may and uh, then you'll go from there. Everybody can get that information at godsmack.com. Are you going to go out and do the the big summer uh, festival circuit as well, the U.S. festivals you, with the I, you know the I whole big so. show or no? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I heard that we agreed to do some of these, and most likely they're building tours around those kind of anchor dates. Um, I just don't know which ones and where they are yet because I haven't even looked that far into the schedule. But I can almost guarantee you we'll be out this summer, you know, grinding away and hitting all the festivals. All right, man. Well, maybe we'll talk again if you need to push that out or whatever. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time today. I wanted to catch up with you on a lot of fronts, and it's always good talking. So uh, thanks, man, and uh, all the best for a happy, healthy 24. I hope to see you out there soon. Thanks, Eddie. Same to you, man. I appreciate you having me, always. All right, man. Take care of yourself. Thanks, Sully. You too. See ya. Talk to you. 
Well, thanks to Sully. Appreciate him checking in. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And be sure to join me each and every day, Monday through Friday, talking rock music with you on Trunk Nation. Faction Talk, Sirius XM Channel 103, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Don't forget also the Monday show on Hair Nation, 5 to 8 Eastern, bringing you music and talk that rocks. Six live shows a week on Sirius XM. Be sure to join me if you are not doing so already. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'll be back next Thursday with another all-new episode. Again, be sure to follow on social media as well for info and updates at Eddie Trunk. Have a good week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.